Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, director Jonathan Glazer joins us to discuss his newest film, The Zone of Interest, a searing drama about life just outside of the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp. This conversation was recorded a few weeks ago as a live panel discussion at the New York Film Festival. This was part of our support of the Artist Academy program, where we bring conversations about the art and craft of filmmaking to the next generation of directors. We're grateful to our friends at the New York Film Festival and Film at Lincoln Center for this fantastic collaboration. Joining our discussion is Johnny Byrne, the film's sound designer, supervising sound editor, and re-recording mixer, as well as producer James Wilson. I started the interview by asking Jonathan, who wrote the adapted screenplay as well as directing the film, when in his creative process he decided that the audience would never actually see inside the concentration camp, but rather only hear it. Very early on, I think. Um, my, but when I say early on, probably three years into the project. Um, <laughs> um, so it was after a sustained period of research and um, trying to... Um, figure out exactly what it was I wanted to make. Um, I, you know, I didn't come to that conclusion straight away at all. It wasn't like I had this fully formed thought and then we developed that. It was more <clears throat> a great deal of reading and research and um, a conversation. And it came really from visiting the camps, of course, and then visiting specifically the the real uh, house that, that Rudolf Huss and his family lived in. Um, which was, as you see in the film, as close uh, in proximity to that simulation, basically, um, of the real house and garden, where the camp wall, one of the camp walls was on the one side, the camp wall on the other side, it did actually abut the garden. So that wall became very much a sort of focus of my attention, I think. Um, maybe not even that consciously at that point, but that became the kind of, the kind of compartmentalization made manifest literally in brick and mortar. The combination of how of that and then how do you, the difficulties of representation um, and the ethics of representation and how to do it, how to do it, how to show it and not show it at the same time. And, and so once through then probably another three years, um, we then had a, 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 a script which was clearly... Um, sitting on the side of the wall where the perpetrators lived and had their domestic day-to-day -day lives. Um, and the uh, horrors that and the atrocities that have been committed in the camps and the images that we already know in our minds from all of the, uh, you know, all of the documentaries and, uh, um, and books and, and fiction films and so on made of it that, that you, we, we kind of, I, I accept that, people will understand what those images are. And so I had absolutely no interest in reenacting any of them. For me, it didn't feel um, like a, like the thing to do at all. But at the same time, they were out of sight. They needed to never be out of mind. So the, so that's really what I was serving in my, in my script was how, how those sounds could come across the wall and kind of permeate every frame of the film, bear down on this kind of mundanity that we're sort of witnessing day to day. Um, and so really it, it's, I, 
it sort of felt like that, that was the second film we were making. We always talked about there are two films, the one you see and the one you hear. And I think in many ways, the one you hear was always the one that I, well, you know, the one that I was more, not more interested in, but, but, but uh, that was the most important one to me. Johnny, I want to turn to you now. So uh, two separate films, the one you see and the one that you hear. Just tell us about the process of how you went about designing the the world that we don't see, the one that we hear uh, in the film. And especially I'm kind of I'm kind of curious to hear how you because it's not it's, it's not just a constant drone that goes through the film. It modulates and it's accomplishing different things at different points in the track. So can you talk about the process of creating that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, hi. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so there are there are two films, and 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 there's a great juxtaposition in 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 the what you see and the and the sound that you hear coming from over the wall. And um, the process is very much to uh, formally complete the film one, as we called it, and to have the picture edit and and to go through the process of normal post production and and include all the sounds that go towards the suspension of disbelief and and make the place real with all the layers of the dog barking next door or the baby crying and the cars passing on the street. Um, and uh, But really going back a few years, um, my work began with reading the script and realizing that, you know, that John and I needed to understand exactly what sounds would have been heard, you know, in Auschwitz at that point of time and, and how you would have heard them as well, the physicality of the sound in that space. So, um, yeah, it was about research really and, and understanding that really we needed to um, make an inventory of, of everything from nature that, that would have been around at that time, but and also you know planes and automobiles and stuff. But but um, witness testimony and understanding exactly all the atrocities that did happen, and and to go some way to reenacting those, and and to have a, a library that we could call upon that was enormous, um, so that when we got to the point of completing film one and. And we were re- and film one was ready to to receive film two. We would then spend uh, a rather large period of time editing that together. And so that was a process of John and I over maybe four or five months. Once we had the, the film quite complete, and um, yeah, we we started off with thinking, okay, a sound here, you know, one maybe you would hear something, you know, maybe every ten minutes, and then we came to the realization that. Actually, it's important to be really aware of the presence of the camp the whole time. And, and um, from all of the sound we had, we we made a, a, a kind of a continuous sound that that, that is very representative of um, all things in the camp. Um, yes, I suppose the crematoria, but the the people. Uh, the- so you're you're talking about there, there's a there's sort of a. Um, it's they're punctuated with with individual elements but there is sort of a, a constant there's a tone like yeah. a like a, a like a almost a bass tone that is kind of underscoring that is is that what you're talking about i think that is yeah i think that is what we're talking about and i think it's um it it's it's the machine of the camp it, it is the it, it's the enormous amount of people that are there it, it's the the hum of the footsteps and and the workshops and everything and it and it, it it's uh obviously provides the constant juxtaposition and I think but without uh, having to call upon such uh, specificity of individual uh, you know horrific sound basically so it's um yeah is, it's is um, it yeah it, it, well it is and we talked about that as almost the soil of the, f- the of the sound you know the soil of the place and 
yeah, that 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 kind of the undulation and the kind of constant movement and detail within that, and then and then all of the layers and layers and layers of sound uh, on top of that, yeah. and then how that over, as Johnny said, many months it would be something that we would just keep calibrating, keep calibrating, you know, because you know we probably we underdid it to begin with, then we of course we overdid it. And even though now, of course, it just feels like, well, it's simple, isn't it, really? But, but at the time, uh, simplicity is something you end with, you don't start with. Arri it. Arriving at the simplicity is not an, not an easy thing. Jim, I'm kind of curious. We, we, we talked about film one and, and film two, uh, film one being sort of the naturalistic world with the, the, with the family uh, in, in the house. Uh, without those elements, those sound elements of the camp over and, the, and what's happening over the wall, how did, that, how did it play? How did the film, it must have felt completely different with just... You mean during the editing? Yes. Yeah, that was, um, that was a thing. Um, but I suppose we knew it was a thing because, um, the, I mean, one of the things that marks the process that John and Johnny are talking about that they've described is that it... Um, it's, it's a lot of thinking and a lot of forward planning. And actually that's a process that is um, intrinsic to your working method on any film because on Under the Skin it was similar always, you know, John is working with Johnny before and indeed with Chris Oddy, production designer and your Mika Levy, the composer, Eugene Strange, the location, everything is uh, about... Uh, thinking and planning ahead for this sort of symphonic process of bringing all these crafts together not not a very old-fashioned way of like oh you only bring on that person when you're four weeks from shooting so we all i think we always knew that that was going to be the case yeah. that we would be editing the film without this other element um I, I guess we didn't know what, what exactly what it would be, but we knew it would be there and we knew it would be this other film. And I suppose it was this process of get it right with picture um, and then it will be a very interesting uh, discovery. And one thing that was different a bit from Under the Skin with this film, you've spoken about it, is that because often you're working early on mm -hmm. and, the, and the cut picture cutting is responding to the sound work and vice versa. But I think on this one, as you've said, it almost went to the more traditional idea of the picture needs to be finished. Well, we did do, we did film one, I guess, in a, in a similar me method of very much working the sound edit alongside the picture cut, so that so that all those uh, necessary reactions could occur. But yeah, certainly when it when and you it got to a point where it was like, okay, no, okay, it now needs that's to... that's pretty good. So because I think it was important that film two didn't inform film one because they're ignoring it. So 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 why would it? That's a fascinating way to think about it. Yeah, the, 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 the audio from inside the camp couldn't because they were tuning it out. One of the questions that I had for you is I feel like, I feel like the, the sounds of the camp become more present and, and louder is not the correct word, but it's, I, I feel like there's more, there's more of it as we go through the film. Is that because maybe like the family, we start to tune it out as an audience as we go through it as well? It's funny that you picked up on that because we did... Um we thought it was a technical problem when we, like, when we were mixing, we we um we had this thing where we would play the film through from the beginning and it would sound great and exactly how we had remembered it the day before or whatever, and um and then if we started thirty minutes in or later, it would all sound completely wrong and everything would be too loud and and you know and I would 
check the buttons and think, what have I done wrong? And uh, yeah, and it, and it wasn't that. It was literally just that you have to watch it from the beginning to experience it. And, and that's the way it works. And you do dial it out. Yeah. I think. So, sorry, Jim. No, that's no, I, was, yeah. I was just going to say that's uh, it's also there's a it's it's perpetual. So part of the experience is that this is perpetual. This is happening all the time. The block 11, which is the was was the execution block um, in, within Auschwitz, which is 300 meters from the garden. Um, uh, they had executions, political prisoner executions there up to 80, roughly on average 80 a day. So that's 80 gunshots that would be heard just that, just from that one event, 80 gunshots would be heard every day by whoever was in that house. That's just the tip of the iceberg, of course. But if you, if you, then, then it's a question of, okay, so we're, we clearly the film is made in the scenes are happening in sort of real time intentionally. Of course, we're filming everything simultaneously. You're trapped in that time and space with the with the with the people with the with the with the actors, and we could ladle it on for very realistically from the off, and then by the time you get to the second reel, you're you're not uh, you've got nowhere to go. So there's a kind of there's you, it has to the sound has form. It's not just uh, I mean, you know, as Johnny describes it. It's obviously it's it's in, it's incredibly detailed and calibrated in order to have form because. So what you're picking up on in the sense that you're saying you feel like those sounds are getting louder or they're more of them later on is, is true to some extent. Um, when that violence happens, when, that, when do you hear that first gunshot? When do you hear the second gunshot? You know, those are conversations we had and constantly. You know, when are those, what are those stages of, how do we unfold that experience? Um, yeah, so it's a, it was a, sorry, it was a, just an extremely uh, um, uh, um, detailed process. And as a sound nerd, I get really excited when filmmakers give me different information from the sound than I get from the image, which of course this is this this film is a, is just a masterclass in. Tell me about the montage of the flowers and that particular sequence. And that to me is some of the most horrific sound work uh, that's coming from over the wall. Tell me about that. Was that you, Jonathan, was that was that part of your original concept? Did you write that scene? How did that how did that scene come come about? What what I do is I sort of write. I shoot, uh, but but I think of shooting as gathering, uh, like a, so. It's a it's a kind of gathering for me, and then and then then I'm in the room with Paul Watts, my um, our friend and longtime editor, uh, and month after month after month, we are trying to shape and equally find the form of how are we telling this and what what to, what are we jettisoning? What are we what are we keeping? And that things in constant flux. Um, so the flower sequence is, a, is sort of the center of the film in many ways. And it's the sort of center of my own experience of making it um, or finding what it is, what it, the invisible, what's invisible in this film. Because the experience uh, of the film for me is, is trying to kind of put a feeling on that screen. Um, my wife always talks about my process, she understands better than I do, which is like, it's almost like the images for me are scaffolding. And then you're trying to put the feeling on the screen. The scaffolding's just there to support it. And then bit by bit, you take those scaffolding poles away, and you're trying to rem you're trying to leave the fewest remaining um, to get to the feelings of, of and that and that. So the red, the flower that bleeds to red, uh, Mika's music on the black at the beginning, Mika's music on the black at the end, the fade to white. Those three block flat colours are the kind of uh, undercurrent of the entire film 
and the flower sequence uh it happened i mean i i mean i i, I don't i mean I'll, it's too abstract to explain how, how that happened i'm sorry if i'm being too abstract already but the the um it's i mean that particular sequence started when we were filming and there were I had a couple of hours to spare right before we finished shooting in the house after, you know, five, six weeks of shooting in that house. I said to Mark Wilson, the first AD, I said, Mark, just give me a couple of hours while everyone's packing up, just me and the camera and the, and Staho, the camera operator. I just want to go around and just shoot some of these flower heads. I didn't know why I was going to shoot these flower heads, but I was shooting these flowers. I just felt I'm going to shoot these flowers. Mika wrote a piece of music, which is not in the film. And that piece of music that they wrote when... Uh, Mika and I were together in the room um, was so extraordinary and it felt like the film it felt like the it felt like that feeling I was describing that, and and it, that had been missing thus far and I kind of keep personally I keep going until I connect with that feeling and that and that that piece of music that they wrote made me think the flowers, the flower, I'm going to get the flowers out. That's what the flowers are for. And I got Paul Watson and Paul came in and we just cut and Mika's got the music there and Paul's cutting the flowers. And then over the next couple of weeks, it realizes that actually that music is no longer in the film, but we're left with the flowers. And it's sort of, it's a very, it's a very organic, it's a, it's a, it's in flux, I suppose is the best way of describing it. We get to that feeling somehow. And when it's, when it, when it offers itself, when it reveals itself, and it 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 it, sh it feels like it should be no other way. It was always meant to be that way, right? I mean, that's my yeah, yeah. That's my experience yeah. too. I think it, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't written. No. Uh, but there were there were different s s scenes written that described a garden with flowers. Mm. But the way it was uh, came, out. came out was completely different. So it's a quite a good example of that organic yeah. uh, process of subconscious and conscious. And then, of course, the last part of it was the uh, quite towards very late you know not that long before my, my recollection is a couple of weeks before the film was first seen in you were, we were in a mix we were in a mix yeah, in yeah that, that came in with the, quite late very late the the the, the, the screen that stops the, and the, the, the stem red. that run the, the stem you remember you played the stem yeah, yeah, yeah. and it stopped and then and then you added i said johnny put more red on and then mika was at the back and yeah, the, the voice track came just out. ran it out just, and we were like, oh, that kind of works. That, uh, but we didn't know why it worked. It wasn't like, it was just, it was, it was very, it's all, you know, it's, think, it's the beauty of, of film. It's the, it's, it's the best so, part of filmmaking. So that wasn't planned at all, but that tone that goes, eh, where you yeah. think the film has stopped, or some yeah. people do. I don't know what you thought when that happens or it's broken or something. Yeah, some and, people uh, think there's a technical problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. great. And Perfect. that was a very, very <laughs> right, at, right at the end. And sort of thinking like, is, does this work? And yeah. and it really felt like it did. And, that, and that actually it need that part of the film at that point needed something to. But then Mika had written the sub. The written a, Mika, the sub bass was an instrument. Like Mika works with instruments. It's always about, you know, in Under the Skin it was symbols, wasn't it? Do you remember? And the, in the yeah. uh, and then in and then the sub bass was a relevant. You know, Mika uses instruments like tools. You know, what's the what is the right tool? That's how we all think about what we're making. And so that sub bass was for something else again, jettisoned, you know, over, you know, mm -hmm. superseded by something else. But then in that moment, the sub bass came out. It's it's like all of these things are in orbit all the time, mm -hmm. you know. There's that thing that you know, obviously the the shoot is the second rewrite of a script, and the and the editing is the third. And I think with John, sound and music is potentially a, a fourth on that yeah. because everything, as you say, is is still very much in flux. Yeah. 
You've been talking. You've been talking about, been talking about uh, Mika Levy, and I've had some ideas to change it now. As well. <laughs> <laughs> the filmmaking process is never finished. Uh, you've been talking about Mika Levy and their score for the film, and um, Johnny, I was a, I was a little surprised. We were chatting outside, and and you told me there's less than ten minutes of score in the film, but the score looms so large. Um, and every moment of it is so impactful. Uh, Jonathan, tell me about the, I'm f- always fascinated by how directors decide to get into the film and how they choose to begin. You chose a very interesting way over black to play score, uh, and then bring the bucolic sounds of the, of, 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 you know, of the river and the swimming in. Tell me about the, the genesis of creating that, that, sequence and how you worked with Mika on the score it's so hard a question it really is it really is how does you know it really is a very hard question because it's I work with Mika the way I work with Johnny the way I work with Paul the way I work with Jim the way I work with Chris the way I work with Eugene we're a very community-minded bunch of freaks and we um, are always we're always in the conversation. We're always in conversation with each other's work and with each other's role, isn't it? So it's not a sort of. Um, so it's very hard to say. Okay, well, on Monday at three o'clock in the afternoon, I had this idea, and I said to Mika, it's, "It just doesn't work like that." Mika wrote a huge amount of music for this film, and what we kind of understood, eventually, slow to it, was how it just was sliding off the screen. It just didn't want music. What John sliding off the screen? What do you, well, I mean, it was rejecting the film was rejecting music. It didn't, I mean, it was just rejecting music. And I mean, because of what Johnny was building, of course, and the, and the credibility of that was being undermined by the kind of artifice of music, the sort of emotional artifice of music. And, um, and so music became music, the role of music just, it became, it left the front, middle and center of the film to the periphery of the film, but became exactly what it needed to be in, in that, in that repositioning. So it was a sort of, it, it, it's, I don't know. I, I find I'm really hard. I can't, it's very hard for me to go back and kind of unpick how things happen. It's sorry. You might. Know. I, my, my memory of that, John describes it exactly. The music in lots of places on the film and, and it, and it was, it didn't seem to be working. It was, it was really a long process, struggle involved, you know, really, um, argue, you know, for Mika, I think yeah. especially. And then my my memory is that that because um, I remember you telling me about it um, before coming in to hear it was the uh, end uh, music yeah. uh, as being uh, of Mika composing that and yeah. you, and feeling that at the end and that being there for a while and then that inspired the idea of this um, frame. Uh, idea yeah of the, 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 the submerging the book, the book ending we were talking about submerging how we submerge and how we surface and how just thinking that we need we do need music i mean yeah. you know yeah. there isn't any yeah. where can we have it yeah. you know i remember that being a- totally the music is connected to the white the black and the red it's connect, it's all part of the expressionistic kind of underbelly of the film i think uh but i remember being with you once i mean the way we're set up in london is i have a little studio and uh in one room, Paul was cutting with me, and in another room, Johnny's got uh, the whole set sound set up. But Johnny's in Brighton, so we've got a kind of remote live working. I'm hearing everything that Johnny's working on, 
and Mika's upstairs writing. So we're all in the same space all the time. So that's what I mean about we're all informing each other. And I remember being working with you and saying, "Can you?" Did, and I just heard that exit music that Mika was writing next door, and I hadn't heard it before. Mm. And I just heard that so this music coming through the wall. And I remember saying to you, it's extraordinary, yeah. uh, and I put, do you remember, I, I pointed the laptop, but I just said, listen to this. And then I left you and I went, open the door, and Mika's in there with this piece of music, you know, in, in the middle of writing this piece of music. And so even though the music sort of somehow, oh, suddenly there's this piece of music, it comes from, it comes from years of friendship, discussion, evolution. Yeah, it's, because the, the, the threads within that piece, I remember being discussed yeah. five years ago or something. Yeah, I mean, exactly. but what you're saying makes total sense to me. Um, because I also want to just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about how you shot the film. You know, what you're saying with Mika's score and with Johnny's uh, sound design, um, you know, it, it, it there's it doesn't contribute to artifice at all. Everything is stripped back. It's very, it's very, it's very simple in its, in, in, in its approach. Uh, I, just so that people are aware, I'm, I was fascinated. I, I wasn't aware of the way you shot the film the first time I saw it. I, I heard you talk about it later and it really, uh, I was just struck by, uh, I think the, the, yesterday I heard it, uh, uh, kind of described as a surveillance camera mode. So can you talk just about the way you the way you set up the cameras in the house and the way you shot? I'm fascinated by it. Well, it, it was about it was it was part of my reluctance to make the film in the first place. Like I, I was constantly wrestling with the idea of making. It. I used to ring Jim and say, I'm, "I'm I just can't do this. It's just it's just nothing but darkness. There's nothing. I just don't want to make this film." And then I ring him up the next day and say, "I've got it. I know what we're doing." And I ring him up the following day and say, "It's it's over. I can't do it anymore." So it was just this constant. I'm sure you all have that experience yourself. But it is that feeling of just you're being pulled to something and repelled by it at the same time. It's a very strange process and particularly with this film, particularly with this subject. And then it was about how to, how, how not to shoot, how not to use the artifice of cinema, how not to glamorize, how not to empower these characters with the, with the tools of cinema, the tropes of cinema, how you light nicely, how you frame nicely, how you sort of get a close up and an over the shoulder, all those, the whole, all the, the whole, the kind of, the whole language of, of filmmaking fit, felt to me to be completely counterintuitive to, to, to our aim. So, which is strange. So it ends up then, well, how, how do we film it? How do we film it without, without fetishizing and using those kind of glamorizing tools of cinema? How, and then it was, and, and keeping a critical distance from the characters, you know, looking at them almost anthropologically, like a species. I wasn't, I was interested more in how they, how they acted than how they, than what they felt. I wanted to see what they felt. I wanted to know that they did feel, but it wasn't a question of were they moved by things. The question was what moved them? What were they moved by? And so we're sort of engaged in their lives, but at the same time, we're, we're at a critical distance from them. And so that, that creates then, okay, well, what's the way, how do we, how do we record that? And that, and then, you know, bit by bit, you get to me winging you up saying, I need, 50 cameras in a house for three years and you know we all walk away and that became 10 cameras in eight weeks <laughs> but you know it is a kind of it is it is a it's about it's about not being involved directly involved so you are recording we used to call it big brother in the nazi house that was how we kind of 
sort of it. So for those of you who, for those who might not be aware, so you hid cameras and you were monitoring and directing from offsite. Yeah, we we hid some from the children. Well, put it from the children sometimes, but we and microphones as well. And microphones. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it, and the whole house was sort of umbilically linked with all of Johnny's sound wires and all of the camera department's wires to to. Whatever, wherever we were gathering all that information over that wall in shipping containers. And that's where we watched the, what was unfolding uh, on 10 monitors. And sometimes we'd have action playing in scenes simultaneously. I mean, it was carnage, you know, uh, but it was, uh, it was exciting. It felt like that was the way to do it. And for the actors, it must have been extraordinary. It must have been extraordinarily freeing because they could get up and move around the house and do, you know, you weren't shooting traditional coverage. No, each take, each, you got all your coverage in each take. So in other words, if, if Sandra's sitting down in one take, and for whatever reason, she gets up and opens a door and I don't, for whatever reason, the rhythm of the take isn't very good. I can easily say to her in the next take, okay, start this one by standing by the window. And you're not trying, you're not thinking, oh shit, I've baked it in already. I've shot, I've shot that now I've changed my mind. You know, you can just keep the thing alive all the time with each, each take can be completely different from the last. But what it does mean is that you're not mixing takes, you're staying within a take. Um, yeah. Yeah, you have perfect continuity because you never have to go back and get it. But you also have a lot of footage because... Uh, also, Johnny had to rely on, you know, Johnny had a sound team there who were, you know, they were... they were. Johnny was sort of constantly telling, asking for sound to be recorded in a certain way from certain distances, right? You wanted all the kind of authenticity of those sonics. That's why it's amazing that, um, you know, there were like 36 tracks of audio, I think, uh, that we recorded on every single take so there were microphones everywhere so if Rudolph was sitting at his desk and we wanted to hear the children who are outside then we would just choose that microphone because you know and hence the the deep layers that you that you experience in the film and that also meant that um you know waste not want not that there's an awful lot of audio and my team back home went through a long process of cataloging everything and saying right you know these are all the dog barks we have these are all the children laughter. You know, these are all the footsteps heard from above. This is all the sounds of people walking down the stairs. And then we had a, you know, a huge library to, to, uh, yeah, to, to create the sound. Yeah. yeah. There's also a film language that you began in Under the Skin in a smaller way with yeah. the eight cameras in the uh, van that Scarlett's yeah. character drives. Yeah. Um, but this was, yeah. I, I don't know if you think so, it felt like a, a, a expansion and sure. development yeah. of yeah. that language. Yeah. Uh, let's open up and take some questions from the audience. Do you have uh, any questions for the uh, for the filmmaking team? Thank you all for being here today. I just had a question. Um, Jonathan, do you, or any of you, did you speak fluent German or did you kind of have to have someone there to tell you like, hey, they completely mispronounced words or were wrong? I'm, I feel like that could be difficult. You've, you've, I've, been, I've been dreading being asked this question for the last five years, actually. <laughs> you, finally, you finally asked it. Um, I tried to learn German uh, at the beginning, and I, I, I gave up very quickly, I'm afraid. And it's partly because I'm too thick to learn it at my age, but also because um, the nuances of language are something that you have to, I think it has to be, you know, something you, you grow up with to really fully understand. And um, fortunately, um, the German cast were pretty much fluent in, in English, which was extremely helpful for the way we communicated. Um, and I had a translator um, who's actually a filmmaker, and I had him, he's a German filmmaker, fluent in English, obviously, and he would be in one ear. Um, and on my, in my other ear, I'd be hearing the German, and I would have him live translating. like a, But 
you know, I wrote the script, so I knew what they were saying. And I remember saying to Jim very early on, it's going to be, you know, when people are like, how the, how the hell are you going to know what's going on? And I'd say, well, it's fine because, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep them on the script, you know, absolutely word for word. There's yes. going to be no improvisation. And then, of course, within five minutes, they're improvising all over the place. <laughs> and, and everything's improvised, and I love all that. So I, I just embrace it. So it's sort of... It, it, you, it, the, the, your, to your question, it started when we started casting the film. And once I'd said to Jim, I've got to do this with German actors. I'm not going to have English or American actors pretending to be what they're, you know, it's got to be. Of course they have to be. And, but then, the, so when the first sort of casting tapes came in, um, I, I was terrified of, I, I remember opening my laptop to press the prelude on the first one and there's a guy talking German. And I thought, well, I don't speak German. I close it up. And, I, and Jim was calling me every day saying, you, have you watched the first casting? And I go, no, no, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Because I was terrified of it, because it was a sort of, it made me think, what the hell have I done? You know, I mean, I'm, what a, I don't know what's going, I don't know what's, how am I going to direct this? But then as you kind of accept that and you go into it, truth, the truth, you, you're either going to believe what's in front of you or not, you know, and it's, it's something beyond language that, that you believe. Mm -hmm. Or you kind of can, you can, you understand that. If, if, do, I, do I believe that? Do I trust what I'm hearing? So that's the first principle of like, um, and then it's about, did they say it right? Did they deviate? You know, and that's where Lucas Feigelfeld, who was my uh, translator, would be really useful. He'd say, look, you know, the way Sandra said that is what you intend, but she said it in a way of such and such. And then I would then make a judgment. Okay, do I want to change that now or should I live with that? You know, so it was an ongoing process. It was never, nothing was ever kind of set in stone, but um so it's quite interesting. I'm never going to understand the nuance. I'm never going to be able to to accept the nuance, to understand this film on that level in a way that a German speaker would be able to. Well, I'm going to ask a follow up to Johnny. What, what, <laughs> tell us about the challenges of dialogue editing in a in a, in, in a, a foreign language. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, fortunately, the, the the easy answer to this is that Paul Watts. Um, put subtitles on everything during the process of the edit. So, um, and in terms of, you know, going through the, the, the micro dialogue edit and choosing a different syllable because, you know, there was a noise behind it, that's actually pretty easy to achieve with just looking at waveforms. So, so yeah, it's, um, yeah, the, the, the answer there is subtitles for, for, for during the work process. They, they were done. We had a German assistant editor, Andreas Nold, and that that was a very conscious decision that we planned because we knew we were going to not just get a normal amount of rushes, but like I don't know what, like a hundred times the normal amount of rushes. Eight hundred hours. Eight hundred yeah. hours. Uh, I don't know what the average. Apparently, our post production supervisor said the average amount of rushes for a film is like a eighty quarter of that. Yeah. So Andreas's job was to subtitle the rushes, not you know, everything. Yeah, everything, and it's not just what it's not just what's being said on camera, but the whole thing. I wanted to know everything that people were talking about us, you know, off camera, you know, like in the kitchen when they were here. So everybody, you know, all the, you know, sometimes you see 10, 15 people in frame. They're, most of them are mic'd up, or if they're not mic'd up, Johnny's got mics all around. All of those microphones, everything was recorded. Everything was was a subtitle. So because we were using, you know, it's all a resource, you know. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, more questions? Uh, yeah, the two of you. Towards the back. I have one question about the um, actual the the sound movie and the like the actual movie. And I feel like a sound movie. I agree with you. Like it becomes like a white noise, and you just ignore it. Actually, the 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 sound mix is is very much front wall. So the whereas the the score at the beginning, the end of the film occupy the room for very solid reasons. Once you start watching the film, we found very much that that um, 
to give it a big surrounding space was somehow seemed a sort of conceit that didn't fit, you know, the, the, the document yeah. that we were trying to make. So, so, so was there anything there. playing? Yeah, was there yeah, anything? It probably was coming from over there. Because yeah. oh, the sound it? at that point yeah. is Yeah, would there be anything coming, coming from, from the speakers at that point? I really hope not. Shouldn't have been, yeah. <laughs> we'll check that out. All right. uh, but it's, it's what were you saying was fascinating. Like almost like the you're saying that the film rejected a lot of musical score. I, I feel like, Johnny, what you were saying was it also rejected a lot of, of work and a lot of things happening in the surrounds. Like it, yeah. it almost became a very sort of front for almost a mono track in, 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 in parts. It did actually. I mean, so the link that John was referring to, um, how we, how we kind of go about working is, is I sit in my room in Brighton, 50 miles away, John is in London. And for the most part, we're, we're listening to it in stereo because that's the easiest way of communicating. Um, we can get all the edit things we need to do and, we tend to work on the mix in tandem with the edit and have things generally placed in the right place. But um, unbeknownst to John, I was I had my own <clears throat> Atmos version of the mix that I was keeping going and not feeding down the line. And there was a point in time where we then met in London and I said, and, and here's the surround sound version. And, and we were kind of pretty aghast that it, because it just didn't work, did it? It did not suit the film to have, um, you know, to, to, to rely on on such flimsy ideas as, you know, things whooshing around mm -hmm. the back. And so we thought, okay, let's, uh, you know, and I said, well, actually, if I hit that button, it goes in mono. That's pretty good, right? And so we, di we didn't end up at mono, but we, um, but it, it's all front wall. But, yeah, it just uh, did not seem to suit it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had a question? Or was that it? Okay. Uh, right here in the front. Um, when you were talking about the second film, Actually, when you said that, it was like light bulb. You're like, exactly two films, right? It becomes sort of louder, but also like a little more clear, a little more specific. I mean, at one point, the one of the boys hears somebody right out the window yeah. towards the end. Mm -hmm. And he says, he's, they were fighting over an apple, mm -hmm. drown him. And the little boy says, don't do that again, or whatever. Yeah. But it, it seemed like... It's coming through more and more. I think we, I think that there's a kind of the shape of the sound. It'd be interesting to see what the actual the waveform wave looks like. But the, the, I always think that the garden with Lina when when she's showing her mother-in-law around the garden to her mother, her mother around the garden, um, that's kind of where there's a sort of shift, a gear change, or something in in not complexity because it's it's all very complex, but in um, there's an acceleration of some sort going on from that point, I think. And then uh, the scene with the boy in the bedroom, the scene with the gardener, with the spade in the garden, with the ash, the human ash on the ground, uh, Hedwig in the greenhouse with the gardener, who she's sharing, a, having a cigarette with. Um, they are entirely sonic stories. They, they're, 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 you're, you are Johnny's work. There is is the script because um, all you're watching is someone having a cigarette in a greenhouse or playing with the two dice on the bedroom floor, nothing really going on visually. And so I think maybe it's partly that, that that's another gear change that there, where there's a, where that into the last sort of six minutes, six, seven minutes of, of, of that part of the film before we go to winter is entirely sound. The narrative is entirely sound. So I think maybe that's another it's shape. Sad, isn't it? Yeah. It was the introduction of <clears throat> other ideas that, that definitely moved the narrative on in a way that, Previously, it was yeah. just here is the presence of the camp. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would say those bits were 
certainly more present, yes. Well, that's all the time we have. I really want to thank you guys for coming out today and talking to us and and, and uh, just sharing the film with us. And, and it was such a pleasure to be able to talk with you about the extraordinary sound work on the film. Jonathan James, Johnny, thank you so much for coming out. Thank, to thank, talk you, to thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Many thanks to Jonathan, Johnny, and James for joining us on the podcast today. And an extra special thanks to our friends at A24 and the New York Film Festival for facilitating this conversation. The Zone of Interest is in limited theatrical release here in the U.S. We will have a link to tickets, as always, in our show notes. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube, in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us.